That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is filmmaker Sean King O'Grady. He's the director of We Need to Do Something, based on the novel by former guest Max Booth III. And his latest film, The Mill, is currently streaming on Hulu. Welcome to the show, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, both of us, I believe, got a chance to talk with you for like the Huluween celebration. And I'm I'm really excited to dig in a little bit more and talk about The Mill. But for our listeners who haven't necessarily seen it, maybe, can you give them a, a little bit of a synopsis of it, of the film? Yeah, The Mill is a dystopian science fiction film, which is interesting that, you know, I very much thought it was dystopian science fiction, but now the movie's out in the world, people are calling it horror. And I, I think maybe that says something about the state of the world that we live in currently, because huh. I think the movie is like fairly accurate to what could happen in 10 years. <laughs> That's why it's horror. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's too accurate to what the capitalist hellscape that we all live in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the Mills movie about a guy named Joe who, who wakes up in an open air prison cell containing nothing but an ancient grist mill. And he comes to learn that he's actually in this cell because he's been held there um, for advanced career training by the corporation that he works for, Mallard Corporation. And he essentially has to play this zero-sum game in which he's competing against, he doesn't know how many other employees who are held in similar cells um, as they have to push this grist mill each day and the person with the lowest score loses and is killed. So it's a story of Joe and what happens in his time in this cell. So... One of the things that um, that I, I didn't get to talk to you about in our, because we, we had like six minutes, it's no time to be able to have a discussion. But one of the things I really wanted to mention was that having worked in a pay for performance, quote unquote, like system, where it's like you want to, every year, it feels like you have to do something a little bit more than the previous year, but you also are being held in account to like everyone else in your employee, like in your employee pool as as on your team. This movie gave me so much anxiety because I, while it's not death that is awaiting me if I don't, you know, keep exceeding the idea that like, you know, my, my ability to continue working is tied to what other people are doing, but also myself and continually to improve that. that this movie hit me hard, Sean. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. I, you, know, you think of teams and you think of companies yeah. as being teams. But if you're pitting one person's performance against another, that's not a team, right? That's a form of competition that that absolutely promotes the worst in humanity. And having to be in a system where you're dealing with that day to day, no one should have to experience that. Have you yeah. seen there's this movie, um, not movie, it's a documentary series, I believe, on HBO Max called Telemarket. No, is it that it's a telemarketers? I can't remember, but it's about like telemarketing and what it the teams it create like what it creates and like it goes much Oof. deeper but it, it's a really interesting look at early kind of this kind of model and what it creates and what people can become and so it's interesting to see your film come out now looking at what we could be in. i'll have to check that out i've worked extensively as a telemarketer so oh, that really for me yeah it's kind of funny i i worked <laughs> i worked in this telemarketing um for this telemarketing company and you have for anybody who's familiar with telemarketing this will sound very familiar you wear this headset and the headset automatically dials your next call for you it's a system where you know the leads are generated in the system it tells you like a paragraph about the person you're about to call and then it automatically dials them and there's 30 seconds in between calls and what I was doing specifically was trying to raise funds to build a new statue for a university. 
This was like in the years just leading up to the Great Recession. People had already started to like feel the pain that was coming. Yep. So I'm calling these recent graduates of this university asking for money to build a new statue. <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're like, tell the college to get me a fucking job. <laughs> oh, you had the worst telemarketing job. You're like, I get to call new grads and have them all tell me to go fuck myself because like, <laughs> they don't have any money. Yeah. Oh. And then they would, and then it would hang up. There'd be 30 seconds of silence and then it would call the next person. And so I found this like very perversely fun and was just having a blast. <laughs> so I got a friend a job there. He lasted half a day and I watched him. It was amazing. It was like a movie scene. I'm sitting like across the room from him. There's all these people between us. And all of a sudden I see him stand up, slam his headset onto the ground and just walk out the door. And he called me later. He just said, what is wrong with you? Why would you get me that job? I was like, I don't know. It's kind of fun. It pays decent. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, well, it's a job. And that's, that's it. But that's also the thing about your movie too. It's like, it's a job, which is, and you bring in the fact that he has a wife and a kid on the way. And like, this job is necessary so you can provide. And it's so, it, it brings, I think the film brings in that really interesting kind of conflict of like you want to fight capitalism but then what happens with like the consequences of the other people you support and how it is very hard to not be a cog like a literal cog in the capitalist machine which is very bleak but also like you know i love a movie that confronts head-on just the systems that we currently live under like you he literally becomes a cog in the machine it you couldn't get more like hey see but again I appreciate that in 2023, especially coming from a place like Hulu. Like, I think it's cool that a bigger brand will support a film like that. You know what I mean? And put it out on a streamer. Yeah, I do too. It's interestingly enough, this is the first non-independent film that I've made. It's the first the first film that I've actually made for a corporation. And it has this like blatant anti-corporate message. (laughs) And I think it was, I think... I'm not sure this would have happened prior to sort of like the great resignation and the way that the way that that people were feeling and even the people within, you know, this isn't to say they felt that way about that company, but I think anybody working in any company has seen some of these things and has felt this way. And it's really interesting. I think when you get to see people express their opinions and their ideas within a corporate system and be willing to promote something that, that is, um, you know, inherently an individualist expression. Yeah. Yeah. So when, um, when we, when you and I had our one-on-one talk, I, I was really fascinated because you, you mentioned, we talked about the production design. And so I really wanted to kind of touch on that again, because uh, from what I understand from our conversation, these sets were, were mostly practical, correct? Yeah. The, the actual set, it was, it was 18 foot tall walls. It was 15,000 pounds of concrete. We actually built that mill based on an ancient grist mill that our production designer saw in Italy because she happened to be in Italy when I sent her the script and was seeing all these mills. So like a lot of the anachronisms that are there are are just her inspiration from being on that trip, which is really cool. I like when something like that, something that's very personal works its way into this. I also think, you know, this is, are we doing spoilers or no spoilers? Um, I think no spoilers. I think no spoilers for this part for your film specifically, just because I'm not sure who else has seen it. So we'll keep it spoiler free for this little portion. (laughs) Right. Um, So yes, the the I don't know how to get around this, but there's there's a reason why things are anachronistic in that cell, and you come figure that out later on. But but yeah, the the design. So then, interestingly. And I didn't get to talk about this last time because we we only talked for for forty five seconds or whatever it was. So short. <laughs> All of that, the cell was real. The one element that wasn't was the sky. Okay. okay. We shot that indoors on a soundstage with um with just uh basically like a tarp that is the ceiling, and then we had lights. We didn't use any lights on that set itself all the lights were in the sky and the only lights that we used were a light to represent the moon and a light to represent the sun and then the light of the projector beam so we lighted as if we were lighting (laughs) the movie practically as if we were actually outside Uh shooting so this it was it was wild to watch because we had the stage that we shot had these like really old 1970s stage lights and we would just move them 
uh, Seamus, our DP, would work with his team and they would move them with a scissor lift across the sky. So it was like you could watch. There's these essentially these like unintentional time lapses that we have where you see it go from like morning to afternoon because the sun is just moving across the sky. So it was it was pretty surreal to see that happen. But it was Seamus's idea from the beginning of I'm going to light this movie only from the top with the light that would actually be there present if this cell were really built out in a field somewhere wow that's so cool the skies were crazy our our the visual effects supervisor i think i've done five movies with him now uh patrick he did he built those skies from scratch so those aren't like plates of other skies they're they're skies that he he built almost as if he were creating a video game holy shit yeah, that's so cool. It was wild. And so that to me was also like the way the cells anachronistic, the way that we made the movie was in that we're telling the story about this technology, but we're using technology that didn't exist like six months prior to us making the movie to actually execute it in the way that we did and make the world feel real. So I like that. And I think that's, you know, I, I think what I like about the film is that it's really while the AI is the antagonist, it's not. The AI yeah. is the puppet of the corporation and the corporation is created by humans. And I think that's sort of like the state of technology where we're at right now. I really do think not to be um, too alarmist about it, but I think we're at a, a, a inflection point in humanity where we as a collective are going to decide how we're going to use AI and how this tool is either going to make society better or how it's going to make society worse. And I think there's a version of this where we end up in an absolute like hyper-capitalist mill-like hellscape that Mallard Corporation is, you know, wealth continues to be concentrated into fewer and fewer hands. And I think there's a version of this where maybe it's not quite this utopian, but it's like you guys familiar with fully automated luxury communism? <laughs> sort of <laughs> so it was this idea a lot of thinkers started talking about it during the industrial revolution because they're like well what are the workers going to do once there's no labor for them to do and the idea was that oh there'll be such a surplus of everything that people are just going to chill they're going to basically engage with their hobbies and their passions full-time and if you don't want to do anything else, you don't have to because society, the machinery of society will provide for you everything that you need. And I think there's I think we could get close to there with where we're going with technology if people just decide not to be jerks about it. Like if, if people decide that we're going to actually use this, we're actually going to spread this wealth, we're actually going to create good for society instead of just making like literally like nine people super rich. I think this could be achievable. So that to me, ultimately, that's like what I want to say with the mill is a look at what happens when instead we are this hyper competitive corporate hellscape versus what we could be. And I think we're going in the wrong direction, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree with that. Man, I would yeah. love a life where I could just engage with my hobbies. <laughs> Oh, solely my hobbies. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, but we should, I don't think we should look at that as a fantasy. No, I know. I wish we didn't. You know, I feel like you see that in like a Victorian novel, like not Victorian, but like I think of movie of books, like when I read Jane Austen, a lot of it was a lot of those women. And again, that's a whole other thing, but like they were engaging in a lot of hobbies. There wasn't a lot of work. There was, and again, that's a very different time, but it is an interesting, like it shouldn't be that difficult to be able to like, more readily engage with your hobbies and have leisure time when I now feel like leisure time is not a real thing anymore, <laughs> which is so fucked up and sad. Yeah, it is. And if you look at like the average American's life and how much time they spend working versus versus even like prehistoric people like hunter gatherers, hunter gatherers. Yeah, sure. Their lives probably were very difficult in a lot of ways. And if you got an infection, you were probably going to die. But you got a lot of free time. Yeah. People don't. True. People are just working themselves to death. Yes. <laughs> so I wanna let's I wanna take this back. When did you how did you get introduced to the horror genre um as a as a viewer? Um, well, if I'm if I'm telling the true story of how I got introduced to horror as a viewer, it's because we had I grew up in a small town and we had one of these places that's like that's kind of amazing where it was three different stores in one. It was an ice cream store, a liquor store, and a video store. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wait, where did you grow up? Was it where did you grow up? In Michigan. Okay. 
Hell yeah. I was going to say, it's the Midwest. I know, I don't know if Michigan is considered the Midwest, but that feels very Michigan. I love it. It is, it is. We're like the East Coast. We're like the very Eastern part of the Midwest, uh, the very North. Yes. And so we would go, my cousin and I, who's also a filmmaker, would go to this video store where they have, they had this not rated section. And there were things that we wanted to see in the not rated movies that our parents wouldn't let us see in the R rated movies, but our parents didn't realize that not rated meant it was like <laughs> we so gnarly it couldn't get rated. So we <laughs> we were at a very young age getting all these movies that we would later come to find out were giallos. Okay. Yeah. So it's like we had a very interesting horror education from youth. And it's funny because there's things in those movies that obviously we were renting them for very different reasons. We wanted to see blood and violence and everything else. But there were elements of those films that I now am still working into my films because it just like it sank into me and was really influential. So that's that was kind of a funny introduction to to horror. And then obviously, I think the way most people do as a teenager, you start looking for stuff that frightens you and the grossest right. films you find and, and things that are really interesting. So I think it's amazing that your introduction was with Giallo. Like, I don't we don't hear that an awful lot. There's been a couple times where like Italian cinema has come up as like an entry point. But like a lot of times it is not that. So I love that in Michigan, in the United States, I, I'm not sure when you grew up, but at that time, I I don't think that those were like readily available for at least for me that I was aware of. Because uh, wh which do you know? Do you remember like which yellows you were you were watching or which ones you enjoyed? Uh, they all kind of blend together, you know. Yeah. It's like there's, there's a scene I remember from one that was really fantastic. Like I remember it was and it was one of these movies. There's all these there, these weird kind of knockoff movies they were making at the time. Like there, <laughs> there's one that was a Knights Templar movie, but then Planet of the Apes was really successful, so they decided that they were going to make this Templar movie set within a Planet of the Apes kind of world. So like the apes, <laughs> so like, <laughs> there's this pre-script where it's like in the near future, the apes took over and but come to save us from the apes with the Knights Templar. But then it's just this zombie movie with this like drunk archaeologist who's like trying to track down these zombies and then using the Templar as like his instruments to go and, and fight these people. Anyway, so there's yeah. lots of movies like that. But the one specific okay. scene I remember is is a guy on a ship and he comes to realize at some point that some like horrible disease is taking over the ship. So he'll go to like open a door and like a skeleton will just fall out onto him. And then there's zombies chasing him. And I remember a scene where he opens up one of the doors and just like a whole family. There's like a little kid skeleton. There's a mom skeleton. All these skeletons fall into him. He falls backwards and he's just covered in these skeletons. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Okay, that sounds incredible. Gonna have to watch that. Going to have to find it. Yeah. Somehow. Listeners, if you know, please let us know. I want to watch this movie. I want to see the whole thing's on a ship. And it's really funny, too, because now I realize all these things that these movies were doing that I thought were cool. Like the whole movie's on one boat. It's just one guy mm. and a bunch of skeletons. It's all just because they had like $65 to make this and like yep. some brother <laughs> had a boat. <laughs> so did you get scared easily as a kid? Were you easily scared by movies? Not as a little kid, but later on, like I was the kid at the sleepover, like the sixth grade sleepovers where we'd be watching like another movie I saw on your list, uh, Jason Goes to Hell. I remember watching that and like almost throwing up because I was so scared. I was just shaking, like physically shaking because that movie free and like going back and watch, that's not a very scary movie. <laughs> um, it's very campy, but I can understand I that. When I hear those kinds of movies made someone so scared, I'm like, oh. Well, they they succeeded with one person of getting them very very scared. They did. They got me. Um, but yeah, no, I I was definitely, yeah, movies would get me. They would definitely get me. Do they still get you now? In a different way. Yeah, I'm really happy when they do actually because I have the problem of like looking at the craftsmanship too much, and it's I realize yeah. I realize now my thing is I'm not that into a movie if I'm watching it for the craftsmanship and I'm watching it for the first time. And um, if I forget about it, if I forget about the filmmaking, I get really excited because I just realize, like, all right, I'm on this ride. So now, now when I'm scared during a movie, very, very excited and even more scared because I realize they're doing so many things right. Do you remember the last movie that did that to you? That that scared me like that. Uh huh. Or that yeah. like you realized that you weren't paying attention to the to the craftsmanship of it, or that surprised you? Yes. And I'm I'm blanking on the name of this movie. You guys are going to know it immediately. It's about a guy that believes he has Satan captured in his basement. Oh, I oh. trapped the devil. Yes. 
that I, there was a point in that movie where it was like it was just so suspenseful that oh another one that did that to me was the vigil oh yeah yeah i like we love the vigil i was watching a movie i was i was like in that world that one that one was so good that one was yeah. really good i saw that one like in a theater and i was so it's such a good <clears throat> it's so good at scares and I, I trapped the devil, man. That's a good one. I haven't heard Plum and anyone mention that in a bit, but that's a good, that is a good tense Christmas movie, everybody. Yeah. It's a Christmas horror. <laughs> it's a solid Christmas movie. Okay. Well, we talked about your work, your horror history a little bit, but Sean, what movie did you bring with you today? Speaking of communism, what movie are we discussing today for your Guard for yeah. pick? So I'm going to set the stage here first. Okay. So I'm going to, okay. let me paint a picture for you. Uh, this is the early nineties and I've got this VHS rack at my house and it's all the normal things that most people had in the early nineties in their VHS rack. It's lots of those like clamshell Disney movies with the sort of iconic cases. There's definitely some Ninja Turtles. There's a bunch of these weird movies like VHS shorts that you would get at Burger King with a kid's oh, meal. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> let me not, I, oh, I could That's go on a lot of memory. The McDonald's shorts that they had on VHS, the McDonald's animated series. So yes, oh, I remember those. Well, the McDonald's <laughs> ones were like pretty high production value, actually. I ended they up were. Yeah, I ended up watching a bunch of those not too long ago for for a very strange reason. But um, but yeah, the Burger King ones just sucked. They were so bad. Like I hated <laughs> even having them. Um, sorry, Burger King. But uh, yeah, it's lots of stuff like that. And then like I remember one specific movie we had was it was like the Crash Test Dummies. Somebody thought that was IP that should be turned into a kid's show, which is so yep. more terrible. I didn't even think about I like that. You I have forgotten that until just now. And it, that it just came like flooding back as you said that. I was like, oh, fuck, that was a show. <laughs> it was crash test stuff. It's wild. Um, so, yeah, I remember having that. And then there's this like in a bunch of other normal kids stuff that was cool and I was into. And, and uh, Heathcliff, which is like a knockoff Garfield. You guys know Heathcliff? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the row there were these movies that were my dad's movies and they were all double vhs and they were all in like these maroon cases and it was spartacus gone with the wind and dr shivago and (laughs) dr shivago is the movie in particular that i I think really and it's funny because I, i watched it this morning because I hadn't watched it in a long time. And me I too. <laughs> realized why this terrified me. No child should ever watch this movie for so many no. reasons. So let me read a brief synopsis before we jump into that, because it really is not a movie for children at all. It is trauma porn at its at its finest. <laughs> but in Dr. Zhivago, this epic tale, the, it is the life of a Russian physician and poet who, although married to another, falls in love with the political activist's wife and experiences hardship during World War One, and then the October Revolution. Not our usual pick, but it's no. I'm so excited to dig into what scared you about this <laughs> Same. So set the scene. How old were you when you saw this? It sounds like you just might have picked it up off the rack. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your whole experience watching this and why this is one of your scarred for life picks i didn't pick it up off the rack i was forced to watch it on a regular you basis were forced to watch yeah on a regular basis <laughs> yes so and by the way no! i just want to say i'm not disparaging my parents i have like wonderful parents i have a great relationship <laughs> with them and, and there's this one like weird element where they I, I don't know whatever movies they decided were appropriate for me to watch was just so far off base and um like yeah, another example. I would my, agree dad with that. Me, my dad took me to the theater to see the crow when i was nine <laughs> so, yeah so anyway i digress so let me go back to you i you know as i mentioned i grew up in michigan we had these freezing cold winters and something about cold winter days would make my dad want to start a fire and make the whole family watch dr Chicago. and it was it was like a running joke in the family that my dad would be like let's watch and we would be like no not dr Chicago. anything but dr Chicago. but it always ended up being dr Chicago. And they would like, they would bribe us as kids. I'm talking, I'm probably like five, six years old. They would bribe us into watching this movie with ice cream and popcorn. And then we would sit down to watch this three hour movie. You had to switch the tape in the middle of it. By the way, the movie oh, had, yeah. the movie's got like a six oh, minute yeah. overture. And then yes. sequence <laughs> has another overture. What is going on? Why are they doing this? And then, and then it, the movie starts and within like the first couple minutes, like Disney style, uh, the the kid who will become Dr. Shivago, his mom dies and the funeral scene is terrifying. It has like, it's the, it's, 
you know, it's out in rural Russia and it's this cold winter day and you've got all these people in, um, I don't know what their religion was. It was like Russian Orthodox or something, but I think so. Yeah. There's a lot of pageantry so. and there's a lot of like yes. scary costumes. And I went to Catholic school as a kid. So like all that stuff, just like the pageantry of religion terrifies me. And and, and this this scene, I was wondering if that scene, because it's like she's not even she's barely in a coffin. It's like she's presented on this like beautiful bed and like her dead lips are just like he's watching the wind and like leaves go over her dead lips as a little kid. And then he watches them pound the nails into the top of the coffin. It's, it's like, horrific. And then there's a shot once they pour the dirt over her coffin. There's just like this shot from, I don't know, it's like a profile shot of her in the coffin, cold and gray and dead. I took a note of that because like, this is fucking grim. <laughs> it is. Like, that's horror. That's absolutely yes. horror. And, and, you know, this is I was like, waiting for her to get up. I was like, oh my God, she's going to open her eyes. This is a zombie movie now. It's wild. And it's just like, it's this beautifully shot epic David Lean movie, right? And that shot has no business being in the movie whatsoever. It's a tight close up from inside the coffin. But anyway, in like the next 30 to 40 minutes of the movie, um, you're you're going to see more death. You're going to see sexual assault. You're going to see suicide. Like all these things you absolutely should not show children somewhere it's funny because i can't remember the i I remember vividly watching that movie many many winter nights but there's there's actually another scene and i can't quite recall i've always thought that it was from gone with the wind which by the way i wasn't going to choose because like i don't want to discuss that movie for a lot of reasons um you know Um, that is very fair. fair i've always thought that it was from that movie and I'm not sure that it was, but there was a moment within one of these three movies that what actually happens after this is like, like messed me up pretty bad. I remember there being a kid dying and I remember a horse being involved. I don't remember which one of the three movies is from one of the three. And I remember for some reason when this happened and like a parent gets the news that the kid is dead it was the first moment that I realized that I was going to die. Like really oh, realized geez. that I was going to die. Oh my God. And in that moment, I remember saying to my parents, I'm going to die and there's going to be nothing after. I just remember like breaking down and sobbing and I was inconsolable. Like I can picture where I was in in my living room at the time. And just it was that it was the moment that I realized my own mortality. Like, it still, like, shakes me up when I think about it because I can feel the way I felt as a little kid, like, realizing that, you know, this is going to end. I didn't, for whatever reason, and it's, um, you know, and your parents try to convince you, like, no, we don't know that. We don't know that this is the end. be something after. And I just didn't, just something about the way that the movie hit me, it felt like there was finality at the end Mm -hmm. of this. And like I was a little kid and this could happen to me before this just gets horribly bleak and you guys want to hang up on me. What I think I've been thinking about the past couple of days is if I if I had this like traumatic, uh, I I guess, um, core memory of the realization of my own mortality while watching a movie, like why did I decide to spend my life making movies? And 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 I actually think that's why. I think because it could elicit such a powerful emotion um, that for whatever reason, like this art form hits me in that way. And it's the same with comedy. Like if I'm, if I'm in a, if I'm in, this isn't like unique to me, something horrible can be happening in your life and you can watch a funny movie. And for those 90 minutes, your life is better. And similarly, movies can make you think about things that you don't want to think about, but need to think about. And, And that, that for me was like a real, like as an adult looking back on it, I think it's just a testament to the power of film to connect with us emotionally. So you said that you didn't want this to, before it got too bleak and we hung up on you. But what, what I was thinking about as you were talking about this is how, I, I mean, we've been, we've been recording these for four years now. So we've been, we've had a couple hundred guests at this point. And one of the things that uh, does come up, like there's sometimes where people are like, yeah, this, this scene just scared me. It was a jump scare and it traumatized me. But a lot of times what we do hear about is that the movie that the guest has chosen has been a mo- movie that either made him think something existential 
for instance, your own mortality, or it's a moment that like they realize that everything that they had seen up until this point, um, that there is other kind of cinema out there, that there's other kind of storytelling out there that um, is like shocks the mind. And so we, we've seen that happen an awful lot on here. And so it makes sense that you said that. I think it's like, you know, we laugh and it's it's definitely bleak and it's it's definitely an existential thought for a young kid to have. But it surprises me still to this day how many times something of that nature does come up on this podcast. Movies really be telling us how to feel like confronting our, our mortality at a very young age. I swear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's that's Disney's whole trick, right? Is just yeah. Yeah, we're gonna kill a parent in the first five minutes. And now we've got you hooked because it's your worst yep. fear. Yeah. Yep. And I was thinking at the beginning of this movie, I, I was I was wondering if this opening scene was one of the moments for you, because it is I mean, we we have no real context. This little kid is seeing his mother uh, be put to rest. We get, like you said, the, the shot inside the coffin. And then he's immediately whisked away to this other family that he does not really know. And he is in a room that looks like a prison cell. And the outside is bleak. It's like there's branches skittling across the window. There's like, it looks, it looks barren. It looks post-apocalyptic right outside. And it is a moment where it's like, fuck. If I was a kid watching this, I'd be like, is this what's going to happen to me if, if my parents like I can imagine that thought being in my head. So I it does not surprise me that this is one of the scenes that that just affected you. It's like a scene from the road. Like, yes, exactly. Oh my God, it is like a scene from the road. <laughs> and, like, and some of the some of the stuff that's blowing by are like the flowers that he laid on his mom's grave. It's yes. like pretty heavy handed. Well, and like it's, it's uh, and it, it's so I mean, I am not the biggest history person but i know that that era of russian history is bad like it was not good in the war in russia around this time and obviously this movie is cap is like capturing kind of that political unrest and the revolution but these kinds of movies i always i avoid because i history scares me like movies about world war one world war two i i'm like it happened i don't i don't want to know which is so which my family always makes fun of me about like you can watch serial killers and monsters i'm like yeah because those are very fake these movies are very rooted while they're fiction like rooted in the real atrocities and like pain that people have been through and it's that's more terrifying to me because it is based in reality and i know that again this is the story of i'm so sorry but dr javago is a fuckboy poet if we really want to like distill it down to its basic and (laughs) basic things here um it is also a really interesting look at political unrest and revolution and a little bit ties into what we were talking about with the mill in terms of like trying to fight against oppression and trying to find a way past these regimes and i think that's terrifying as an adult as a kid it probably it was not as like the historical context probably wasn't as prescient but it is really interesting watching it today and seeing how it handles that era of history in Russia that I know don't know much about but it definitely romanticizes it in a very interesting way and also well, makes it terrifying but yeah, yeah. And speaking of the romance like the love triangle in that movie is nuts it's like it's not even a love what? triangle it's like a love rhombus it, it's, it's- <laughs> I, I was getting confused about who was who at, at one point i was like wait hold on who it, yes okay i was like i had to keep reorienting who was married to who and who knew each other when and which woman had gone through the more more trauma at the hands of horrific men like laura the 17 year old girl i'm like Laura needs a hug and a break. Like, let's leave her alone for a little bit. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um, and then an interesting thought too that that occurred to me while watching it now as an adult, which obviously I've avoided this movie since I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> you saw it a lot. You saw it a lot. <laughs> and and it's so watching it. I started to wonder if I was watching like uh, anti-Soviet propaganda. And mm-hmm. I started researching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, me too. It's it's not even that it's like like sort of like American war machine was maybe loosely involved in Hollywood, whatever. No, this was this book was not going to be published. Like they couldn't find a publisher in Russia, and then somehow somebody somebody in like the um the the British Secret Service MI six or whatever they are I don't know I only know it from Bond movies they uh, they got their <laughs> hands on the book and got it to somebody in the CIA and Alan Dulles who the dude that like Dulles International Airport is named after 
he gets his, he reads the book, Dr. Shivago, and says, people need to read this. Like this, this is amazing. Like this is the, this is the greatest piece of, of, of anti-Soviet literature ever written. And, but what he says, and like, I read these letters that he actually wrote to his colleagues is that it's a statement about the power of the West that the Soviets would think such a beautiful piece of art needs to be buried because it's about an individual trying to navigate a system. It's like, it's basically like his critique of, of the Soviet government, what was analogous to, I guess, our critique of being an individual working in the corporate world. Yeah. And so it's it's really interesting to see that to me, that just points more at like, it's not about any given system being good or evil. It's about the fact that like, what are we doing as humans where wherever we create these systems that gain too much power, they just like drain the humanity and the life out of us. This was my first watch. And the, so yeah, I had never seen this movie before. I am not a history person. It was my least favorite subject in school. I hated it so much because it was basically memorizing dates and facts and all this kind of stuff as opposed to like, English, where which is what I, I had majored in, where it's like you could look at work that was written at the time and then you could analyze it and understand why it was, you know, written for the time. And so for me, English, I learned more about history through my English classes than I did in actual history courses. Oh, yeah. And oh, this yeah. type this level or this time of time frame in um world history, I know very little about. We never got to it in any of my uh history classes that I had ever taken. So I had a Wikipedia page up for most of this movie as I was watching it. This movie took me a lot longer than three hours to watch because I was like, what the fuck is happening now? I don't October whites, white, white Russians. What is this a race? Thing? Like it, literally I'm thinking, what is going on here? Bolsheviks. I'd heard the term before, but I didn't know anything about Bolsheviks. And so I'm sitting here and I have this Wikipedia up and I'm like, okay, pause. What is happening? Because it doesn't give you <laughs> any historical context. It just expects you to know this is a time in Russian history where this is happening and world war one happened. And then the October revolution happened. I'm like, I know World War One, but I don't know anything else about stuff. And so I'm sitting here and I'm doing a lot of research. And then I did also find out what you were talking about, about how the CIA realized that it was an opportunity to embarrass the Soviet government. And so they had published uh, a thousand copies of it in the Russian language and like secretly, you know, sent them out into Russia as a way of like you know, stirring up maybe an underground revolution. And the one of the reasons that he was submitted for the Nobel Prize was also because of the CIA trying to like, again, embarrass the Soviet Union even more. And so I'm reading about this. And I'm like, this is fascinating. And so yeah. I spent a long time just going down a rabbit hole of reading about the actual novel and why it became such a huge hit. And it's because of America trying to embarrass the Soviet Union, which is the wild CIA published the book. That yeah. was that's so wild. So in the, the Vatican is involved in this too, because they, it, there was like some sort of, it wasn't a world's fair, but it was some sort of like world expo world's fair type of event. And the America had a booth there and Russia had a booth there and they were competing to show the, the values of their different lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And the Americans couldn't be so overt about it where they were just like handing out copies of Dr. Shivago. But the Vatican apparently had some sort of like clandestine booth in the back of their booth where they had literature that was banned in different countries. And so the Americans were like seeding this Vatican booth with these different books. And yeah, I think whether it was like 500,000 copies or whatever of Dr. Shivago, they put that in the Vatican like lending library. <laughs> And the CIA claimed that this operation was a success because they were seeing pe like covers of uh, pieces of the cover of the book being ripped off and thrown on the ground all over this expo, which meant that Russians were taking the pages and smuggling them back into Russia so that they could put the book back together there and hand it out to their friends. Wild. What? Yeah. And it it really it's it this got me thinking too of like so much of motion picture history takes place during the Cold War, especially like the, the yes. outward age of like American films, that thinking of of this medium, you can't like extract this medium from the Cold War and and as as a propaganda device. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too, where uh, like there's there's so much trauma in this film and there's like so many quotes like when Yuri is a battlefield 
uh, Yuri Zhivago is a battlefield doctor and he's talking about the deaths and he says these are the lucky ones and the 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 vision is is showing like frozen bodies on the fields frozen bodies covered with ice and snow just like this is like the lucky ones it it's like you're lucky to be dead in the Soviet Union than being alive and so we have that and then there's the moment where uh where was it the personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. And I made that in like all caps and highlighted it because I was like, this is this is definitely a propagandist film, because like you were saying, it is it's the Cold War time. We're having like we've we've we're in this time because this was what, 1965, 65. And so we're we're coming into this this era. And it's really hard to watch this now in 2023 without seeing like just kind of laughing at some of a little bit of the over the topness of of basically saying, see, communism is bad. The individual is killed. This is happening. This is happening. And so I, I find it I just find it fascinating because I'm also while while I'm watching this, I'm also watching this Showtime series called Fellow Travelers, which is about two men that fall, fall in love in the United States in the 50s. And it's at the time of McCarthyism and we're talking about Red Scare and all this kind of like deviance and stuff. And so I'm watching this as a historical piece of fiction that came out at that time while watching something made in 2023 about kind of this the same time period. And it's I don't know, it's fascinating to me in a way that history classes never could have been fascinating to me. Yeah, the actual work that the culture is putting out and how that reflects it. Like if you think about, so you've got America in 1965 that's very much promoting, like as a government entity, promoting this story to be told about this authoritarian (laughs) Russian government. Meanwhile, in 2023, we look back on the American government of that time, which was authoritarian in its own way. Did the CIA like fund the movie at all? (laughs) I don't don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think so i couldn't i don't see it. anything on that no the I, was, I mean to end at the book yeah because again like like you're saying with movie machines being propaganda machines i'm always curious like it is they're also i mean movies are still propaganda machines think about marvel movies and like their relation to like u.s government and like how they portray like the u.s government and weapons dealing and things like that so i'm just super curious because i know that and so many i mean again this is not <clears throat> the same but just interesting again how the government involvement in film still and that pro- like you said that propaganda machine so yeah and, and like obviously top gun's an incredible movie it's an incredible piece of of craftsmanship but like you don't you don't it's, get those, those propaganda out the, yeah. out the wazoo yeah it's it's a recruitment video one thing that so also just, in my... thinking about that too hard just gives me the ick a little bit so it's like <laughs> Sorry, Terry, what were you going to say? No, no. The one thing that also surprised me is I was doing, I was, I was digging around trying to figure out because I was really impressed. All right. So I like the first part of this movie a whole lot. I, it loses me in the second part, to be perfectly honest. But that first part, there's some really great moments in this. And I was really impressed with some of the cinematography in the beginning. And oh. there's like, there's a couple moments. There's one where, um, where Laura is being escorted by Victor, who is this creepy old guy that is sort of entangled with her mom, but also seducing her the, the mom's 17-year-old daughter at the same time. But there's this really cool shot where he takes her out to this really ritzy place and they're dancing and the camera just spins and then it stops and they're sitting down at the table. And I was like, ooh, that's kind of a very interesting uh, camera choice. And then later on, when Laura's mom discovers that <laughs> Her daughter has been sleeping with her lover and she tries to poison herself. And there's the camera that is stationed outside the house and it is following Victor as he is moving through the house and getting an envelope to like send a note to a doctor to get it. And I was like, this is a really cool tracking shot of him moving through the house that really establishes a place and a feel for the for the film. And it makes it really exciting to watch. And then there's a finally another shot where um, there's a candle melting away in a frosted window and the camera kind of moves in towards that and moves out into the the street where um i believe yuri and tanya is looking up to the window because laura's in that in that house and i'm just like there's some really cool visual motifs in here and then i come to find out that this movie was initially shot by um nicholas roke who um we've covered on this podcast twice now as a director with don't don't look now and the witches and he was fired <laughs> Um, and then replaced by Freddie Young. And I'm wondering, because a lot of the movie after those moments becomes very 
less adventurous, shall I say, in in the in the mm-hmm. camera department. And I'm I'm wondering, I did find this article in biography.com that was talking about Zhivago on the 50th anniversary. And it said, quote, what should have been Rogue's crowning moment as a cinematographer on David Lean's Dr. Zhivago ended abruptly with him being dismissed and replaced by Freddie Young. Rogue had previously served on a, on a second unit of Lawrence of Arabia, but Lean apparently became suspicious of Rogue's adventurous nature and technical bravura, bravura and resented how he impressed producers with effective solutions to problematic scenes. While Rogue's work is still visible in sections of Dr. Zhivago, that year's Academy Award for Cinematography went solely to Young who is oh, solely credited rude. as a cinematographer. So rude. And I'm like, it, I, I was trying to find what scenes might have might have come from Rogue for the movie, and I can't, but I'm going to tell you that those moments feel really out of place with the rest yeah. of the cinematography of the film. And I do wonder if maybe that was Rogue attempting to liven up the, pr- the yeah. procedure. Yeah, what about those opening shots that are pure Fritz Lang? It's yeah. like straight out of Metropolis. Yeah. Well, and like, I feel like because David Lean... I've learned this while researching Lawrence of Arabia, which we all know is like, I actually still haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia. I need to see it. Oops. You can do that. It's a classic. Lean double feature today. Oddly, it takes you two days to watch. I was going to say, <laughs> it takes you a full week to watch. I am, I'm flying to Japan. So maybe I can do a double feature on the flight and it'll get me through my entire 17 hour flight. If I do the double feature on the plane, <laughs> but it does feel because watching this movie, I was thinking a lot about like, what this movie looks like how long it is the beauty the vastness of it and what movies look like now and it does have that like kind of especially in the second part that kind of freddie young lawrence of arabia kind of like wide shot bleakness vibe which again i think fits the time like the time jump but still like there isn't that creativity as much behind the camera but i've been talking about this i saw caligula Sean the new the like ultimate cut at Fantastic Fest so I've just been like thinking a lot about like cinema and like how cinema in this time period there was it was so much more epic it felt like in its scope and in its size and obviously very expensive like I will not deny that but these movies are these like crazy historical epics that are so lush and beautiful and like these events like every actor is in it and it's like takes place across so time and space and it's incredible and we don't have that as much anymore and yes I understand it's probably budgets and it's like a different kind of filmmaking but damn this era of historical epic so beautiful like I didn't have an appreciation for it until recently in terms of like how cinematic these movies are and how technical and the amount of love and work that goes into them like I knew that but just that watching this after seeing Caligula and being in this headspace, it's like, fuck, what an incredible era of filmmaking, like regardless of the story, but like the technical sides of everything. It's just incredible how movie, what movies used to look like. And I wish they kind of looked like that now a little bit. You know what I mean? Hopefully Ridley Scott's Napoleon does. Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting. I keep forgetting he's doing Napoleon. It's, it's funny I was thinking as you were saying that like who could do this now like who can justify this kind of budget now that's not just a Marvel movie which like yeah, yeah when you think about that like yeah that's its own type of artistry and I respect that type mm-hmm. of artistry as well to create those yeah. of worlds but yeah. if physically I don't know there, yeah there is something about uh, about creating this kind of world and doing this kind of epic cinematography and costume drama and creating this place in time where they really create it. Like even when you see, it's even not even like the epic is as epic of the scenes. Like when would you see in, in the beginning when I think it's the first time that you see Yuri and Lara, uh, they like kind of pass each other on the train and yeah. you get the sense of what that city feels like. And it's covered in snow yeah. and all the windows are icy and everything is um everything's there they really built that if you were there looking around as an extra on one of those sets you would absolutely feel like you were in 1917 moscow and that i don't think that exists anymore with the exception of pat healy was telling me a story about being on the set of um killers of the flower moon and He said that you can look around. He said there's two filmmakers he's worked with that do this, Scorsese and Spielberg. He said that you can look around that set and 360 degrees, everything's period, down to the silverware 
on the tables this period there's and he said it'll be a shot where like where where there's a character that's walking across the street and they make sure that everybody on that side of the street who's inside a building is fully costumed and that the the building is fully dressed just in case the camera happens to move this way and the pan this way and you happen to see and um all the way over there even though you don't see into either building you just see somebody cross the street. Everything's dressed. It's fully built. It's like, a, it's like oh. similarly, he said that on Spielberg sets, like in um, on the post, they actually had the newspapers from those days, the full newspapers reprinted so that if the actors were looking through, just even like a background actor was looking through the newspaper, they would feel like they were there in that place in that time. And, you know, Pat's take on it is like, that's the difference between these guys. That's why they're the best is and it's not just yeah. that i think it's really easy for people to be dismissive of that and like any filmmaker could be like well if i had the money i would do that but like no you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't think of no that. you wouldn't dress yeah. an entire room that, that you wouldn't film like you wouldn't no. do that there's you wouldn't, no way if, if i mean i would have to think of one of those guys if like if they were making a short film and it were set in this room that has no set dressing um if they were if they were in this room making something every single element even if the camera just moved around this room every element would have been as detailed so i think that's just craftsmanship and intention i'm so excited for killer killers of the flower i'm so excited for that because that's out this weekend i mean again a lot long historical epic that i know people are complaining about but i'm i'm excited to see his take on it i've heard some really interesting stuff make this your week of three hour plus movies okay i can do that (laughs) i think i can do that yeah so I'm curious, Sean, because you said that you did watch this this morning um, for the first time since you were a kid. What mm-hmm. what, what did you think as an adult re reevaluating what you were kind of forced to watch as, as, a, as a child? I greatly question why my parents thought it was OK for me to watch this for like, for like every five minutes. There's something new that I absolutely shouldn't have seen. <laughs> and what's what's yeah. so funny is that they're like all the, and I don't know. I would be interested to talk to other people, other kids who grew up then, because like you know, my parents weren't like bohemians who just like let me do whatever I wanted and like took me into situations yeah. I shouldn't have been in. But something about was it the fact that it was a historical epic? Was the fact that they felt did they feel it was in some way educational? I don't um, know. Or was it just that it was the of that time people, you know, like there was one room that had one TV. We didn't have our own personal devices. You couldn't go watch things. It's like, if this is what the family wanted to do, this is what the family was going to do. So I'm going to ask my parents when we finish this, why they were watching <laughs> this with me. Um, and, and then ask other people too, like, yeah, what kind of movies did you watch with, with your family as a kid and why? Well, I, I, you know, I was thinking about this too, because, uh, when, I mean, I, I was born in 1981 and so I grew up in like the, the prime time of VHS, particularly in a family that had one TV, like nowadays, I mean, it feels like I have a TV or some advice, a device to watch something in, in almost every room of my, you know, where I live. And like, as a kid that, that was not the case. It was, you had one TV, um, eventually my parents upgraded their, their TV. And so I got the old one, but like there were, there were, there was times where it would just be whatever the family movie was. And I'm trying, I was trying to think what my, my dad would watch. Cause my dad controlled most of the movies and it was, it was a lot of it were cowboy films. He loved cowboys. And so I would watch all these to me, very boring cowboy movies because it was like the family thing to do in front of the TV. And so I can imagine this being the same thing, particularly because I mean, when this, this is rated now, I think, I think when I was looking up, it's rated PG 13, but at the time it was PG. So even though there are some Mm. horrible things in there, uh, it's not a rated R movie. So I can understand sort of maybe the idea of like, well, it's not rated R, so it can't be horrifying. MPAA says it's okay. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I, I do think that there was definitely a time where I saw movies either, that were outside of my interest or B that were probably a little too um, mature for me as a kid, just because it was the family movie night and this is what we're watching. I wonder if that's, was a good thing though, developmentally to be pushed out of your comfort zone. So you're not just being, you know, spoon fed blippy and Paw Patrol. Um, If, if it, if it forced us to think, and it's also there's, Oh God, I don't even know how to, how to, I don't want to go to a tangent here, but if you look back at um, previous iterations of human culture, you were confronted by death 
all the time. You were killing yep. your food. You were seeing people in whatever kind of community group you lived in die. It was a regular thing and you understood your mortality earlier than having to be exposed to it in a film. Whereas now I think we keep kids. We, I think the currently people shelter kids from everything. And like, what's, what's going to be easier if you accept that there are some unfortunate elements to reality, to this, this physical reality, these things are real. And you kind of accept that from the time you're little and from when you're growing up or being shocked when you're like 17 years old, you know, it's, it's, it's even if you think about, you think about like Siddhartha, right? That was like the mm. whole transformation that he had to go through was he was sheltered his entire life. So I don't know how old he was when he encountered the sick person for the first time. Do you guys know this book? Well, you know, the story. No, well. not really. Not not mm-hmm. not well enough to know the and age. It's a yeah. this prince and he grows up and in the lap of luxury and he has everything that he wants. Yeah. He's sheltered from any sort of harsh reality. He's not allowed to see sickness. He's not allowed to see death. He's not allowed to see poverty. Um, and and then one day he like leaves the palace and he encounters a sick person. He doesn't know what that is. And it opens up his world and he ends up going on on this spirit quest and ultimately ends up becoming the Buddha. And it's this very much kind of Joseph Campbell hero's journey kind of thing that he goes on. But that's what that's what sends him off on this journey is seeing a sick person. And I wonder now if that's what we're doing to children is we're forcing them all into that very sanitized life by controlling them so carefully. Yeah, it's very interesting to watch as someone who has like, I mean, we all have friends. I, I don't have kids. Terry doesn't have kids, Sean. I don't know if you have kids, but I feel like at least we all know people who have kids and watching that is very interesting. Um, and how people are handling that kind of thing with their kids and how versus how I was handled. Again, I'm not that much older than like my cousins who are ki- like little kids, but I have very different approaches, I feel like, to what I was allowed, exposed to and allowed to see. I just wanted to, to, to go back to one of your points about if this was a good thing. I will say that because my dad loved 50s sci-fi, he loved 1930s universal monster movies he loved 1960s hammer films he loved cowboy movies it really gave me i think an appreciate it's why I'm, I'm a film fan to this day even though i did not care for cowboy movies and i still don't like them to this day i do think that those types of movies and seeing the movies throughout the decades as as a very young child allowed me to really appreciate cinema and i i do attribute that to the reason why i'm a i'm a huge film fan to this day so i i do think that there's something to that yeah, yeah. well that that makes me happy i do have kids and i actually when my son was like maybe 5 i watched the original king kong and godzilla with him and he sat and watched those movies beginning to end, just like wrapped attention. And it was, it was like some of my, like my proudest parenting moments. I was like, wait, that's yeah. so cool. That's so cool. My my grandma showed my little brother King Kong and Godzilla. King Kong was I think a favorite. That, like he was like seven or eight. She was like, no, these are important for your cinema knowledge. Like you have to see these. And they it was life changing. Great. They're also just good. Mm-hmm. That's what you know when you watch those movies. They're so like so rock solid. Yeah. Sorry, my cats are like feuding behind me. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Husband's going to go break up the fight. Um, <laughs> never a dull moment. But anyway, well, we have to wrap up, sadly. But let's really quickly give this our ratings out of five. Terry, how many tortured poets out of five do you give Dr. Zhivago? You know, that's hard. I I can I I love the first half of this movie a lot. Like I really enjoyed it. And I do think the second half turns into kind of a slog for me personally. So I I don't really know what to say. I think it's technically very well made. I do think that um, the cinematography is is hit or miss for me. But those moments, those moments are going to stick with me for a very long time of of some of the very brilliant uh, ways that the the film, the camera captures what's happening in that early part. I, I don't know. I think. I, I think it's an important piece of cinema. I'm gonna. I, I guess I'm probably gonna have to give it four tortured poets, but um, it's not one that I probably will revisit uh, for a very long time. Uh, but what about you, Mary Beth? I'm the same. I I am glad I've seen it because I now I appreciate mm-hmm. like where it sits in the film canon. I feel like it's one of those movies that everyone talks about is like, and I I still need to see Lawrence of Arabia, but I feel like this is one of those again a David Lean movie where everyone's like, this is cinema, and it's like, I see that. And, you know, I can nitpick until the, you know, until the day is done about like female characters, but it's a 1965 Russian epic about a tortured poet. Like, I understand where, like, where we're at. It's still frustrating to watch this movie and just like women tossed to the side, like used tissues for this guy. But perhaps that's the point. 
But again, it is so gorgeous and it is such an accomplishment. As someone who has made, I made a film this year with no money and no time and seeing something like this happen. It's like, that's a, it's a miracle beyond miracles. It's just incredible that something like this exists. So four for me. And Sean, you have the final word. How many tortured poets out of five do you give Dr. Zhivago? Um, because I don't want to be too agreeable and because it's about a tortured poet, I'll say five tortured poets out of five tortured poets. Wow. Okay. There we go. Acceptable. Acceptable. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Sean, for joining us to talk about Dr. Zhivago. Um, Are you on social media? Where can the listeners find you if you are? And the floor is yours for things that you can talk about or plug. Yeah, for sure. I would just say um, anyone who hasn't seen The Mill, check it out. It's on Hulu. Do it. Listeners, you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. What did you think of Dr. Zhivago? Let us know um, by sending us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on social media. I am at MB McAndrews on Twitter and Blue Sky and at MB.McAndrews on Instagram. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful everywhere. And don't forget to follow the podcast on socials at Scarred Podcast on Twitter and Blue Sky and at Scarred for Life Podcast on Instagram. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. Most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. (laughs) 